Hello, I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Today we've got an episode for you as part of our discovery series. This is where we talk to a researcher about something really cool that they're working on that we think more people want to know about. So this summer, it's been 30 years since the release of Steven Spielberg's iconic film, Jurassic Park. The movie was famously one of the first to use computer-generated imaging, or CGI, and it brought dinosaurs back into the public consciousness with a roar. I first watched Jurassic Park a couple of years after its release, but I've been revisiting it recently through the eyes of my nine-year-old son, who's a total dinosaur fanatic. Jurassic Park was thrilling back then, and it still holds up three decades later. So for today's episode, we spoke to a media scholar whose research explores Jurassic Park's place in a long-standing tradition of paleo art, that is, depictions of dinosaurs in various media. My name is Travis Holland. I'm a senior lecturer in communication at Charles Sturt University in Australia. My research at the moment has been looking at the way that science is communicated in the media, so looking at the ways that scientific stories and stories that are inspired by science, sometimes science fiction, are reported and told in the media. I've specifically focused lately on paleontology, dinosaurs, which is a major interest of mine. And so I'm looking at the way that prehistoric animals, ancient animals, extinct animals are depicted in all sorts of media, whether that's scientific media or more fictional stuff. Travis's lifelong interest in dinosaurs was sparked by Jurassic Park. I saw that when I was seven. It came out in in September here, so a little bit after the US. And yeah, it really changed my life. It changed the way I look at dinosaurs. Why is Jurassic Park so special? On a cultural level, this is a film that changed the way that dinosaurs have been seen globally for a long time. And it came at this kind of pivot point between the dinosaur renaissance and then the later golden age, as it's been termed by paleontologist Stephen Brissati and others. The golden age of dinosaur discovery, I think, can be traced back to a lot of these kind of millennial scientists who watched the film as kids, who were inspired to see dinosaurs living and breathing in front of them, perhaps for the first time. And there was a lot of research happening throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, which was called the dinosaur renaissance. We'd had dinosaurs through the 18... 50s and on uh, and they had sparked a lot of interest but it kind of died off in the early part of the uh, 1900s and then we started to see through the mid part of the 1900s this dinosaur renaissance where there was a spate of interest research discoveries happening all around the world. Jurassic Park came at the tail end of that and so it took all of this new science and made it public and what has kind of got me interested in more recent years is the way that it took that science that had been existing and put it into the public consciousness. So suddenly people saw dinosaurs in a way they hadn't seen them before. Part of the novelty, of course, was that Jurassic Park was a film enhanced by the new technology of CGI. We saw Steven Spielberg start to use puppets and maquettes and he intended to do the whole movie that way as he'd seen King Kong and others done previously. But by the end of the film, he was convinced by the artists at ILM to incorporate CGI, and it became a really central part of the film, but also not overdone. 
Mm. It's not like they did the whole film in CGI, which is something I think we forget nowadays where everything is shot on blue screen or everything is computer generated. Uh, there was a real blend of practical effects with CGI. That was kind of the cultural and technical revolution that Jurassic Park sparked. It brought these animals to life in a way that they'd never been seen before at all. Travis says that the film quite deliberately places itself within a larger tradition of paleo art. It built on a lot of pre-existing paleo media and paleo art. There's scenes in there which are reminiscent of earlier films and murals as well. Can you give me any examples? Yeah, sure. So there's a famous scene just after they see the Brachiosaurus for the first time and they're kind of staring up at this animal uh, in front of them. It's high above the, the treetops eating leaves and after they see this dinosaur in front of them, they look out to see herds of dinosaurs and there are two other Brachiosaurus in the herds down in the valley. They're coming up out of the water. That's a really direct reference to some of the murals which showed sauropods being in the water because it was assumed that they couldn't be supporting their own weight up on land and so they had to be in the water to do that. And so showing them walking up out of the water was a really symbolic way to say this is the new science, the new science of the dinosaur renaissance that we know. And of course... As a film with moving images, Jurassic Park was able to show how these creatures might have moved. It also really showed theropods as active, and that was one of the first times that had been done, certainly on film, but in also other popular culture. Theropods as being very bird-like, chasing, uh, running, moving very swiftly, hunting very effectively. Instead of being, I guess, crocodile-like, you know, and I'm not... We have fantastic crocodiles here in Australia, so I'm not... Dumping on crocodiles, but I guess you see them most often as being fairly placid, hunting in the water, hunting from a ambush position. And although there's still been debate over that, particularly with something like Tyrannosaurus, it was really an opportunity through the raptors and through a couple of the other theropods to show them as active hunters, as pursuit predators, as really lively animals. Animals probably for the first time in many ways, rather than still lives. Although I will point out, you know, in 1897, Charles R. Knight painted a mural called the Leaping Lalaps, which is these two theropod dinosaurs leaping at each other. And so it's not like that image didn't exist. Um, I'd suggest that that piece of art possibly inspired even the velociraptors and the way they leaped in Jurassic Park. Those animals are now called Dryptosaurus rather than Lalaps. But yeah, that piece of art's very famous from Charles R. Knight. He painted others as well like the Tyrannosaurus fighting uh, Triceratops. And that's really become a kind of standard bearer or defining image of dinosaur media. So some of those late 1800s, early 1900s murals in particular in museums started to show these things. And then Jurassic Park picked up on that same imagery and said, well, this is what we know now, you know, 40, 50, 60 years later. Jurassic Park also explicitly drew on previous dinosaur imagery in film. So... We saw, for example, The Land Before Time, which came out in the late 80s, just a little bit before Jurassic Park. And what's really interesting about The Land Before Time is the people who are involved in that go on to make the Jurassic Park series. So Steven Spielberg was there, Kathleen Kennedy was there, Frank Marshall was there. Frank is now basically the custodian of the whole Jurassic Park or Jurassic World series. 
And George Lucas is also credited, although he didn't have further involvement in Jurassic Park, he set up and ran Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects studio that Jurassic Park relied on. So it's really in conversation with a lot of those other films. There's even a scene in The Land Before Time where Littlefoot, the baby Diplodocus or, or sauropod, and Sarah the Triceratops are being pursued by the Tyrannosaurus through this kind of vines uh, and thorny patch. And they take shelter under this large vine as the sharp tooth, as they call it, pushes down on the vine. And for me, that scene is almost exactly the same as Lex and Tim pushing back on the Tyrannosaurus coming through the roof of the car. Um, was that not deliberate, though? Well, exactly. I think it was deliberate, yeah. So what's really interesting about Jurassic Park, and, and nowadays people talk about media needing to be original quite often, and a lot of the films that dominate are sequels and they're part of existing IPs. But people then go, oh, we need to see something original. What happened with Jurassic Park and with a lot of other films and these uh, films that have really played into the culture is that they're always in conversation with other films before them. So Jurassic Park drew on those kind of paleo art murals that I talked about. It drew on the influence of the previous films before it. It, I mean, the sequel was called The Lost World, which although The Lost World is a trope, there was also a 1925 film called The Lost World, which Steven Spielberg has said was an influence on him, as well as King Kong. So Yeah, and I feel like Jurassic Park happened at a moment where science fiction in films at least got a lot more serious about the science in it and so it was like really well researched and then as flaws and mistakes were were pointed out each film got more thorough with its scientific work yeah so Spielberg goes into these films wanting to make a good film I don't think he goes in driven by the science however he seems to surround himself with people who are interested in getting it accurate as much as possible. But those kinds of issues come up when you do try to be at the front edge of science, when you try to get something accurate and it's uncertain, it's not settled. You know, science is almost never fully settled, but when you base something off one or two papers or somebody's idea and others haven't had a chance to come and back respond to that yet, that's where you get into a potential situation where people go, oh, look at that, you know, you didn't get that accurate. So, yeah, I don't think Spielberg necessarily wants to do that. He wants to tell a good story, and that's seen through what he models himself after and the films he models himself after, the the King Kongs, the Lost Worlds, those kinds of things. But what's also interesting is Spielberg led, through the CGI, they led the introduction of computer-generated imagery in the science. Mm. And so I think there's this story floating around of the animators figuring out the speed at which a T-Rex could actually run, could actually move mechanically because they were used to animating and used to checking these things out on screen. And once they had figured that out, other people in science kind of looked at that and went, oh, that's kind of right. You know, and people now say, oh, the T-Rex can't run that far. Okay, but biomechanically it kind of could. Like, that's that's where we get to. And when you look at it, I think the consensus now is that T-Rex maybe couldn't sprint, but it could probably move that fast in terms of what is seen on screen. And that came in many ways through the animators figuring out how big an animal this fast, this size, 
needs to move. And then you start to get these technologies and we now see biomechanical studies using computer generated imagery of, well, okay, given this bone length, given this hip joint, how would this sauropod, for example, have moved? Because we were never quite sure maybe about a sauropod gait until now. And now we can actually model them with four legs moving along and here it is. So there's this really interesting feedback loop between art and technology and that's something that paleo sciences have dealt with for a long time because it's not a science where you can, other than the fossil, point to something and say, see, here's this great thing that I've discovered. You can't take the image of the black hole and show everybody. So art has to depict the animals. And so there's been this hand-in-glove relationship between paleontological sciences and artists for a really long time, which has led to paleo art and now what I kind of more broadly call paleo media, uh, which is all the films that kind of depict these animals, whether they're on the really inaccurate end, like 65, or whether they try to get things right, like uh, Prehistoric Planet. And Travis pointed out that in addition to moving science itself forward, Jurassic Park has moved the conversation around the science forward. So when I watch Jurassic Park now with my child, and I did watch it in the 90s when it came out as well, um, it seems to me a film about anxieties and guilt, or that could be one read of it. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, anyway. absolutely. I think there's often this perception of Michael Crichton, the author of the book, that he was a Luddite, that he was scared of science and that he was scared of technology. I'm not sure that it's the case that he was scared of these technologies, but certainly he was cautious of them and he urged caution. The question of guilt then comes out of that, I think. of Do we feel guilty about the way that we've used our technology to try and shape or control the modern world? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's also some kind of eco-anxiety. Look, we've made a whole bunch of things extinct, but maybe there's a possibility of redemption if we bring back these things that we didn't have anything with doing extinct from. It's like being really nice to one person because you're really mean to another. Mm. That's a really good point. The notion of ecocide perhaps is a subtext within there. It comes from Dr. Ian Malcolm being the voice of really Michael Crichton in the film. And again, Malcolm raises those questions, Ian Malcolm. He says at one point, you know, scientists go out and stick their instruments in. It's the rape of the natural world. It's a very brutal image. Like it's a very direct, stark image, but that's exactly what Crichton's trying to get across that it's not about the science necessarily. It's, it's a bigger question about humans in general. And that was all a very cautionary, like, look, these technologies are here, but we're going to have a problem if we can't regulate them. And regulation, like technological advancement, outpaces regulation. And I also felt that Jurassic Park was that kind of thing. Like the cutting edge of science is this wild west of you can do anything, ethics be damned. That's, yeah, that's, that's exactly what Crichton, I think, in Crichton's books is a really central theme. He comes back to that again and again in a lot of his work. So he, of course, created Westworld. Those are the same questions that he comes back to is, okay, we can create this, but then what, you know? And Malcolm really poses a lot of these interesting questions about, should we be doing this? Should science go down this route of 
in the case of Jurassic Park of bringing dinosaurs back to life. But you can expose that same question or apply that same question to lots of other scientific things. We could look at AI, which is, of course, the trend of the moment, and ask the same question. Should we be pursuing this route? There's this kind of questioning of science. Instead of just saying, well, discovery is great, let's go out and do it, because we kind of have a right to do that as humans. The film, through Malcolm in particular, says, hang on a minute, should we? Um, And I think that's a really important question for all of us to ask. But it's the job of authors and artists sometimes to ask these questions that other people can't ask and to popularise those questions in a way that might not otherwise reach the popular conscious. This engagement with questions of ethics is part of why Jurassic Park remains relevant, even 30 years later. And audiences continue to flock to the sequels. A lot of people say, is Jurassic Park really that influential? My kind of answer to that is, you look at a film series like Jurassic Park, it spawned five sequels, so there's six six films in total. And across the whole series, each film on average has bought in over a billion dollars in ticket sales. Very few film series do that. And so I think that not only the questions posed by Jurassic Park are relevant, in my view, but audiences are still going to see these films and still engaging with the questions that they have to ask. The interesting thing for me is how do people take those questions on board? What do they do with that thinking throughout their life? So they're just going to see dinosaurs eat people, which is, you know, kind of cool. Or are they thinking about these questions? Lots of the debates online suggest they do think about these questions, perhaps not in a deep way. But if they're inspiring a bunch of people to go out and do more research, that's a good thing. And from my perspective as a researcher looking at these kinds of things and the way that various media popularises those questions and those issues and encourages other people to go out and get involved or do more research or study, I think that's absolutely a good thing. That's it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Travis Holland for sharing his research with us. And if you enjoyed hearing Travis's thoughts about dinosaurs and want to hear more, you might want to check out his podcast, Fossils and Fiction, in which he speaks with paleontologists around the world. And thanks to our colleague Patrick Lenton in Australia, who edited Travis's article for The Conversation. This episode of Discovery from The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by Katie Flood. Sound design is by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Our global executive editor is Stephen Kahn, and Alice Mason does our social media. Med Marwani is our executive producer. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for a free daily email by clicking the link in the show notes. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>